Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Is the Son equal with the Father, or is He subordinate? Thinking Christians have struggled over the tension between the traditional doctrine of co-equality between Father and Son on the one hand, and the dozens upon dozens of scriptures that either imply or explicitly teach the Father's supremacy over His Son. Two ways of solving this problem include the idea of the economic trinity or eternal functional subordination. In what follows, I overview the biblical evidence for the Son's subordination to the Father before critiquing both of these reigning Trinitarian solutions to the problem. Last of all, I consider a few texts often pressed into service to teach co-equality, but upon closer examination, fail to adequately warrant that position. Also, if you'd like to dig deeper into this presentation, I have a link in the show notes for this episode to the full paper, which you can get at restitutio.org under articles as well. Here now is my presentation from the first Unitarian Christian Alliance conference back in October, The Father is Greater Than I, podcast episode 426. Today I'd like to share on the topic, The Father is Greater Than I, exploring biblical subordination. And my plan is to go through these five sections. One, look at what the Bible says on subordination, look at the subordination texts, and then look at theology a little bit. The economic trinity and eternal role subordination, those are two theological concepts related to this topic. And then look at the Bible again and what it says about co-equality between the Father and the Son before concluding. But first I want to answer the question, what in the world is subordination? Well, it's not as mysterious as you might think. You all probably have heard the word subordinate before. It just means someone that occupies a lower class, rank, or position. Many of us are subordinates at our jobs, and that just means somebody else is in charge. Somebody else is calling the shots. It means that you are submissive to an authority. So the real question is, is the son subordinate to the father? And if so, how is the son subordinate to the father? And what does that mean for theology? Now, of course, the Bible is replete with statements about the son's subordination to the father. And what I want to do is begin with this verse here, John 5:37, which says, And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. That phrase there, the Father has sent me, occurs so many times in the Gospel of John. I counted them all up and I got to a total of 41 times that it said Jesus or somebody else said the Father has sent the Son. That's a staggering number for a book that's only 21 chapters long. You might even call it a major theme. But what does it mean to be sent? Jesus himself tells us what he thought it meant in John 13 16 truly truly I say to you a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him did you hear that a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him that was Jesus talking about what he thought sent means now of course two equals can send each other 
There's no law against that, right? But typically, in the world at that time, a greater would send a lesser. And let's think about those two terms, father and son, for a moment. Because it's not brother and brother or neighbor and neighbor, right? It's father and son. What is that all about? In the culture of the time, such a designation implied an inequality of authority, with any father typically understood to be superior to his son. Wayne Grudem writes, In the biblical world, there were no commendable examples of a son not being subject to his father or not deferring to the leadership role that still belonged to the father, even when the son had grown to adulthood. Jesus could easily have called God his friend, his neighbor, his fellow worker, or his twin brother, if they're the same age. Ideas that would imply equality and that were readily available in the culture. But Jesus didn't. He used the term father to describe God, and he called himself and he thought of himself as the son. But beyond this, we have so many subordination texts, especially in the Gospel of John. I'm just going to run through a bunch of them quickly with you and not give any comment. I just want you to hear what Jesus thinks about his own relationship to the Father. John 3.34, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. John 4.34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5.19, The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Did you hear that? The son can do nothing of his own accord. I mean, I would not have the guts to say that of Jesus. Jesus said that of Jesus. So what are you going to do? Number four here, I can do nothing on my own. What? I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, John 5.30. John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 7.16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. John 7.28, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. John 8, 28, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John 8, 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 8, 38, I speak of what I have seen with my Father. If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. This is John 8, 42, I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. John 10, 27 and 10, 29, my sheep hear my voice. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. John 12, 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. John 14, 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. John 14, 28, the strongest statement Jesus makes on the topic, I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. For those of you who missed math, in school, this is what we call an inequality. John fourteen thirty one. I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I glorified you on earth, John seventeen four says, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And then I wanted to mention the Garden of Gethsemane. It's one of the clearest moments. This is now from Mark instead of from John. 
but where Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14, 36. So in light of seeing this incredible amount of information, this data, this biblical data that says that the Son did the Father's will. The Son always submitted to the Father. He even spoke the Father's words. He didn't come on his own authority. He was always trying to pursue the Father's agenda. We have to ask ourselves the question, well, how is it, how is it that we can understand this, especially in light of the doctrine of the Trinity, that Jesus is at once equal to the Father, and so at the same time, clearly subordinate to the Father. And that's where we have the economic trinity idea, which I have to inform you has nothing to do with money or the economy or finances. It has to do with how God plans and organizes or administrates salvation. And so this idea has some pretty hazy origins. Nobody's really sure where it came from. It might have come from Athanasius. But Fred Sanders says that probably the 18th century Johann Erlschberger, a Lutheran theologian, is the one who put the terminology into circulation. Let me describe it a little bit. What is the economic trinity? Alistair McGrath writes the following. He says, The essential or imminent trinity can be regarded as an attempt to formulate the Godhead outside the limiting conditions of time and space. The economic trinity is the manner in which the Trinity is made known within the economy of salvation. That is to say, in the historical process itself. And so there's only really one Trinity, but there are different perspectives to look at it. There's the perspective of how God is in himself or in themselves. If you think about the the Trinity independent of creation and redemption, think of eternity past or, or, or eternity future. And then there's how the Trinity functions in the process of salvation. That's the economic Trinity. Who does what, in other words. Gilbert Belezekian says the following, because there was no order of subordination within the Trinity prior to the second person's incarnation, there will remain no such thing after its completion. If we must talk of subordination, it is only a functional or economic subordination that pertains exclusively to Christ's role in relation to human history. So this is what I call the incarnation window. You have everything that happened before Christ was born and everything that happened after his resurrection and exaltation. And in the middle, we have the incarnation window. And the way this line of reasoning works is that essentially we have to fit all of these subordinationist texts all these times that Jesus says the Father is greater, into this incarnation window. And then what we have is a temporary subordination as Jesus becomes a human, and then an exaltation where he resumes his co-equality. Does that make sense? So that's the economic trinity solution to the puzzle. But I'm convinced that we are going to have problems with that because of other scriptures. For example, before Christ was born... We read in Ephesians 1.9, according to his, the Father's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice the word his here 
is singular. The Father decides in the past, before the birth of Christ, this is talking about his original planning on how salvation would work. The Father decides what Christ is going to do. There's not an equality here. There's still a subordination. Ephesians 3.9 says, The plan of mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, according, this is verse 11, according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus. Or 1 Peter 1.20, He, the Son, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Notice the passive voice in the verbs. The Son did not foreknow. The Son was foreknown. The Son did not make himself manifest. The Son was made manifest. There is someone else who is superior who's calling the shots, and the Son is following his lead. And that was planned way in the past. What about after his exaltation? Does Jesus resume a co-equal status with the Father? Let's look at some of these ideas. First of all, Romans 6.10 says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. I don't see commentators talking about this much, but I think that is an incredibly short but powerful statement of Christ's current, exalted, yet dependent status in heaven today. That he lives to God. He's still living for God, for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 13.4 says, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives, not became alive. We're not talking necessarily just about resurrection here, but he lives by the power of God. He goes on living by God's power. He's still dependent even now. 1 Corinthians 3.21-23, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Or 1 Corinthians 11.3, For the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Again, these are all statements made after his exaltation. These are not in the Gospels. These are written after the fact. Let's look at another category. What about Jesus' mediating role in heaven? Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.34, Christ is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now the right hand is as elevated a place as you can possibly get, but it's still at the right hand. And he's interceding. He's going between the high one and the human race. 1 Timothy 2.5, of course, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and we see this very nicely played out in Revelation 1.1, where we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. So God gave him the revelation. Jesus went as a messenger and revealed it to the servants. Even in establishing the kingdom, Jesus is subordinate to the Father. I'm talking about the ultimate consummation of the kingdom, when all the nations come under his influence. Psalm 2.8 is a famous prophecy, oracle. It says, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That is interesting phraseology to me. God is speaking here. We know that from the context of Psalm 2. And he's saying, I, God, will make the nations your, my son, your heritage. Sounds like God's going to do it. 
Psalm 110.1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Once again, God's calling the shots. He's telling him where to go, where to sit. Matthew chapter 20, verse 23, to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. A staggering statement said by Jesus when they came to him and said, oh, can we, you know, they're trying to call dibs. It's like you're going out to the car and somebody calls shotgun, right? Uh, they're, they're, they're asking, can we sit on your right and your left hand? And I think they sent their mother, which is just like so telling. But <laughs> what does Jesus say? Je- Jesus doesn't say you're not qualified or like, hey, that's for Moses or something. You know, he doesn't say anything. He just says, hey, it's above my pay grade, guys. That's the father's job to pick who's in my government. It's not even his job to pick who would be at his right and his left hand. It's incredible. And what about Hebrews 10, verses 12 to 13? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, picking up on the Psalms here and applying it to Jesus in a very clear way. So even in bringing about the kingdom, I'm not saying Jesus is not going to do anything, all right? Don't confuse me to to be saying that. What I'm saying is that even in bringing about the kingdom, Jesus still plays a subordinate role to the Father who decides when the kingdom comes, who decides who's going to do what in the kingdom, and who brings about the submission of the nations to the Son. This is all the Father calling the shots. Then there's this incredibly, inescapably powerful text in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 28, that comments on the eternal state. And it teaches us that the Son is eternally subject to God. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He delivers the kingdom to God. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is just inescapable, as I said before. It's clear that not only before he was born was the Father the one calling the shots, making the plans, working things out according to the counsel of his will. But throughout his entire life, after Jesus was born, as we saw in the Gospel of John, everything he did was what his father wanted him to do. But even once he was exalted, he still depends and is subject to his father. He plays a mediating role as our high priest. Think about a high priest for a moment. Is a high priest in any, is there any analogy in any religion, whether Judaism or some other religion, where a high priest is equal to the God they're serving. No, that's just not what the word means. That's not the, that's not the figure. That's not what the, the, the figure communicates to us. And then bringing about the kingdom, he's still subordinate, and so he will be after the kingdom has brought everything in subjection, then he hands it over to the Father, and he becomes subordinate himself forever. In summary, the Bible contains dozens upon dozens of texts And look, I'm giving you the abridged version. It's killing me, but I'm giving you the abridged version. (laughs) I have the full version in your paper. It's too long. 
But if you would like to get a, a digital copy of it, it's at restitutio.org. You can find it under articles. But I'm just giving you a sampling of stuff here, okay, of, of this, the text that I have. The economic trinity theory says that only in the trinity's work of redemption do we find functional subordination. Now, some may want to extend the economic trinity to include creation as well. I've seen some people do that. But not only would this be an ad hoc attempt to rescue a theory without biblical warrant in the first place, but also would fail to solve the problem. The Father's eternal plans occurred prior to creation. The Son's heavenly ministry began after his earthly work was done, and the Son's ultimate subjection to the Father will happen after he returns and continue into eternity. Thus, the economic trinity idea is not sufficient to adequately answer the many subordination texts we find in Scripture. So that's just not going to work. Let's move on to the next idea, what I call eternal role subordination. This is a Trinitarian theory, just like the economic trinity, that teaches that, yes, the Son is subordinate to the Father permanently, but we still have co-equality at the same time. And this is how Wayne Grudem talks about it, and he has generated a lot of controversy for this. He presents an ironclad biblical case, ironclad, but then... He rejects the economic trinity. He says, no, it's permanent. It's not just temporary that the subordination occurs. But then he wants to affirm a co-equal ontology. So he makes a strong distinction between function and ontology. Function is what you do. Ontology relates to your substance, what you are, your being, your nature, your essence, and so on. So he wants to say that the son is functionally inferior to the father and ontologically co-equal. He gives this really helpful analogy. In the organizational structure of Phoenix Seminary where I teach, I am subordinate to the authority of the seminary board, the president, and the academic dean. But I am no less a human being than they are, and I am no less valuable in God's sight. So what he's saying is there are different roles and functions in his seminary. There are different author There's a, an authority structure there, but they're all ontologically equal. They're all human beings. They're all made of the same stuff, right? So that's how he wants to explain it. Now this analogy might work for economic situations or organizational situations, but once we extend it out to eternally, we have to ask the question, well, why, Dr. Grudem, you are not in charge and your dean is in charge? I mean, we get it when it's, when it's just a temporary situation. One person decided to pursue a degree in business administration or some other field that suited them better to, to run things. And, and then Grudem went for a Ph.D. in theology, and so he was more suited to teach in the class. We get that, right? But if it was an eternal situation, what's left to talk about? Well, your substance, your nature. Like, why, is, why are you eternally subordinate to someone else. And so I think the analogy fails. Keith Yandel also, the late Keith Yandel, also thinks the analogy failed. Um, and he offers the following proof. He says, the son has the property of subordination to the father in all possible worlds. So that is what Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware and a number of other evangelical Trinitarian scholars are saying, is that the Son just is subordinate to the Father permanently. 
Number two, Yandel continues, if the sun has this property in every possible world, then this is a necessary property. Number three, if the sun has this property necessarily, then the sun has it essentially. Number four, the sun has this property necessarily and essentially. And then number five, the father does not have this property in all possible worlds. In other words, the father is not subordinate to the son. So the son's subordinate to the father, but the father's not subordinate to the son. He goes on. The father does not have this property necessarily or essentially. If the son has an essential property that the father does not have, they cannot have the same essence. Number eight, the son has this property essentially while the father does not. Conclusion, therefore, the father and the son are not of the same essence, homoousios, from seven and eight. This is a major problem if you are someone who believes that the Son and the Father and the Spirit all have the same essence, substance, nature, the same ontology. Because what Yandel is looking to prove here or to demonstrate is that a permanent role difference implies a permanent ontological difference. And this is how he says it. He writes, thus there is no way around the conclusion. NRS, necessary role subordination, entails ontological subordinationism. If the son has an A quality nature, the father has an A plus quality nature. But, of course, ontological subordinationism is not an account of the doctrine of the Trinity. It is nothing other than a rejection of that doctrine. This leaves us with a trilemma. Previous presenter mentioned C.S. Lewis's famous trilemma. I came up with my own. <laughs> I warn you ahead of time, it's not as good as C.S. Lewis's, all right? <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, you've got to do what you can with what you got. This is my first statement. We keep ontological equality and affirm Scripture's clear teaching on permanent subordination over against logic's clear conclusion that permanent subordination entails ontological subordination. Our second possibility is we keep ontological equality and affirm logic's clear conclusion that permanent subordination entails ontological subordination over against scripture's clear teaching on permanent subordination. And our third possibility, we let go of ontological equality and affirm both scripture's clear teaching on permanent subordination and logic's clear conclusion that permanent subordination entails ontological subordination. So the first two possibilities, we keep co-equality. We keep the idea that the Father and the Son are of the same substance. We keep that. And in the third position, we let that go. Now, if we keep ontological equality, we have to pick. Are you going to affirm Scripture and say that he's permanently subordinate, which is pretty much the clear teaching of Scripture? Because if you do that... You've got to just say, hey, it's a mystery and logic doesn't apply to God. Or the other option is we keep ontological equality and we keep logic, but we just kind of dismiss scripture. We're like, well, they were, they were trying. Or, and I, I'm, I'm convinced that this is the best possibility, number three here. Let's just let go of this homoousios word and this of the same substance idea and let's affirm scripture and logic. Wouldn't that be great? We don't have to check our brains at the door when we go to church. And uh, we also don't have to be embarrassed of what the Bible says or of Jesus himself, who repeatedly, unapologetically says, 
I can't do anything. I can do nothing on my own. Over and over and over. It's the Father who is at work in me. So I think that's the best position. But as soon as I suggest that, I know that a number of people will immediately ask the question, what about all those texts in Scripture where it seems to say the Son just is equal to the Father? What about John 10.30? What about John 5.18? What about John 1.1? What about Philippians 2.6? Now, I included some others beyond this in the paper. So take a look at that if you're not... If your verse wasn't covered here, I've got some more. Just, just some initial thoughts on them. Uh, but I just want to go through these by way of explanation and just show indeed how weak these texts are in proving ontological co-equality. I think they just fail to do it entirely. And, or they're ambiguous. They could have multiple interpretations. So let me go through ever so briefly and offer some thoughts on them. John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So people read this verse, they see Jesus and he says, I and the Father are one. And they, and they have the echo in their, vo- in, in their mind and they're just like, wow, this is the moment. This is it. Like all of the Gospel of John, we're, we're like kind of sure, but not sure. But then like in this moment, he just sort of like, peeked through his skin and let his divinity shine through his eyes and, you know, probably had this, like, incredible pyrotechnic display the moment he said one, like, thunder, right? That's how, that's how we read this, right? But I'm convinced that this is not a, a Pantocrator text at all. I think he's talking about sheep. Sheep are anything but powerful, Right? Uh, And this is what Jesus actually says. If we back up just three verses, verse 27 of John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Hmm. This is actually a subordinationist text. (laughs) Jesus says God's greater than all, presumably putting himself in the category of all there, right? What's going on here? Well, George Beasley Murray writes, The setting of verse 30 in relation to verses 28 to 29 shows that a functional unity of the Son and the Father in their care for the sheep is in mind. The Son protects the sheep. The Father protects the sheep. I and my Father are one. This is not ontology, is it? This is not talking about substance, not talking about metaphysics. You don't need a philosopher to parse this. He's talking about function. They're they're doing the same function. They're both protecting the sheep. And I I can't tell you how often I see John 10.30 bandied about by legitimate, credentialed, very well-respected scholars, not only in scholarly journals, but also in the commentaries. This is like one of the clearest examples of subordination and Jesus fitting in with what his Father's doing in the Scripture. Let's go on to John 5.18. John 5.18 says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. 
because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I want to ask you the question as you consider this text. This is another equality text, very important for us to do business with. Who thinks this? Who thinks he's making himself equal with God? Is it Jesus? Is it John? Is it the Jewish enemies of Jesus? Well, it's not Jesus, right? Jesus is not saying, I am making myself equal with God. It's not in the first person. Is this a parenthetical comment of the author of the gospel? Is, is John, which he does, I, I fully grant that. Like, I think a lot of John 3, right after he's done talking with Nicodemus, even 3.16, I would argue, is John's explanation of what Jesus meant when he was talking to Nicodemus. If you disagree with that, we can still be friends. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but my point is this. That's a move John can make. John can do that. He can say, well, look, this is what was going on, and this is, this is how we understand it. He, he's able to make that move. Or it could just be reporting what they thought. Well, let's look at the next verse. So verse 19, the very next verse, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do everything on his own accord, just like his Father. There it is. Clarity, right? What's the matter? Oh, that's right. He didn't say that. Did he say that? I don't think he said that. What did he say to clarify this issue of you're making yourself out to be equal with God. How did Jesus respond? Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So, this expression, making himself equal with God, this expression, according to RVG Tasker, was understood by his listeners in the way the rabbis usually understood it. A man who acted independently of God or who rebelled against God's judgments was said to be placing himself on an equality with God. That's what they think Jesus is doing. They don't think Jesus is just calling God his father. They think he's also taking upon himself in an independent, provocative way this mindset that says, oh, I, I'm just doing this and I'm making myself out to be God or equal with God. I want to ask you the question, who do you want to side with in the Gospel of John? This is actually a really important question that's so often overlooked, especially in the Gospel of John. Who do you want to side with? You want to side with Jesus or you want to side with his enemies? Don't side with the enemies of Jesus. I'm just saying, like, if you're going to name the name of Christ, you're going to call yourself a Christian, go with Jesus. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my, on my own. His enemies say, oh, you're making yourself out to be equal with God. You're going to side with his enemies? It doesn't make sense to me. All right, on to John 1.1. I'm just going to give it, like, four minutes. How about that? <laughs> Why not? John 1.1. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We see in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So many read this, and they formulate an equation that says the Word just is God, just is the Son. 
because they see that it says the word was God in verse 1. And in verse 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it says at the glory as of the only son. So they, they have that equation and then they work it backwards. And so they say the son is the word and they read it with the son in mind right from the beginning. My question, though, is, is this right? The text does not say Jesus was God. It does not say in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and Jesus was God, does it? It doesn't say that. The word is what became Jesus. The word is what became the son. And I think that little distinction just by itself decouples the equation and allows a little flexibility for us to ask the question, well, what do you think the word even is here? Although many of us are used to reading son for word right from the beginning, this is not what the prologue says. In fact, the word does not become flesh until verse 14. This is when we see his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Thus, the exegete has at least five possibilities. One, the word, logos, is a circumlocution for God in action, like his wisdom or spirit. Circumlocution is where you go around saying the real thing you're saying. So when the prodigal son comes to his, himself, he doesn't say, I've sinned against God, and in your eyes. He says, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight. So that's one possibility. Number two is the word personifies an attribute of God, like wisdom in Proverbs 8. So in that case, you'd have it capitalized because it's using the figure of speech personification. But personification doesn't mean a person. It means you're talking of something as if it is a person in order to make a point. Number three, the word refers to a pre-existent, though subordinate being. In this case, the word is a person, but a subordinate person, not co-equal person. So we have three non-co-equal possibilities already. Number four, the word refers to someone who shares God's divine nature but is distinct in person. Would you believe it that there's even a subordinationist way to think of this option? That you can be a subordinationist, you can recognize that the Father in his essence is greater than the Son and also affirm that they have the same divine nature and that they're both eternal. Yeah, it, that's actually a historical position called subordinationism, and that's why I've been careful in this not to use the term subordinationism because I don't want you to think of necessarily that. I'm talking about subordination in general. But this is also the Trinitarian position, the, the more common view, number four. And then number five is the word just is God the Father. That's the view typically called modalism. right? So we have at least five different options. Maybe there are some more, but my point is simply this. There are plenty of ways to interpret John 1, verse 1, that are not co-equal, that do not end you interpretationally with the Father is of the same substance as the Son and co-equal as a result of that ontological reality. So in other words, John 1, 1 is ambiguous. Now, if you want to look at John 1, 1c, uh, where it talks about the word was God and, and talk about the lack of the definite article there. You could even actually make a case from John 1.1c that the Son is subordinate to the Father, as Origen of Alexandria did in his commentary on John. So I don't think this is good evidence at all. And then number four here is Philippians 2.6. This one is really important. It says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. 
Incidentally, all my citations here are from the English Standard Version. If you checked a different version, like the NIV, you would read something along the lines of, he did not exploit it. He had equality with God, but he didn't take advantage of it or exploit it. But let's talk about this word form first. Morphe or form. There are a lot of opinions on what this word means. I, I kind of like the, the translations that just translate it form and let you figure it out. But a lot of translations will uh, substitute in a word that they think really nails this, really, really explains it. Being, glory, condition, status, form of appearance, bodily appearance, mode of existence, the Adamic image, or one's inherent character or quality. Those are all positions held by scholars in the literature. That's a lot of different ideas for the word form. So I think we have a lot of different possibilities. The only one of these possibilities that would require us to, uh, or, or make possible for us, the idea of ontological equality is the first one, being, or usia. And that's what the NIV uses. Who, being in very nature, God. Right? So I, I, I think taking the, the, this one view and saying, oh, this is just what it's saying, it's problematic. And I'll tell you why I think it's problematic. It's because of the next verse where it talks about the form of a slave. What is the essence? What is the usia of a slave? It, it doesn't have a substance. Slaves aren't all made of the same substance, are they? I'm not talking in our, our world. I'm talking in an ancient Roman colony like Philippi in the first century, did all slaves look alike? Were they the same gender? Were they the same race? No, no, no. Slaves are all different types. Some people would even enslave themselves to get ahead in life because they were enslaving themselves to some famous person or rich person that could help them out in their business later on. And other slaves were captured in war. I mean, there was, there's no essence or nature of being a slave, but there is an authority. There's a rank of being a slave. So whatever you say about form of God has to also work as form of a slave. And so if you're going to say it's ontology for God, but not ontology for a slave, guess what? That's not going to work. That is not going to work. So I, th I think Usia being actually just totally fails as an interpretation for Philippians 2.6. But let's look at this word equality a little bit here. Just briefly. Arpagmas, or harpagmas, if you're pronouncing it as an Erasmian, is this word translated grasp or exploit. There's a big debate over it, and there has been for 50 years. That's a long debate. Although scholars like Roy Hoover in 1971 and N.T. Wright in 1986 argued for exploit, in 2016 Michael Martin found a slew of counterexamples and concluded Philippians 2.6 does not speak positively or negatively to the matter of possession. Hence, the whole debate over whether Christ possessed equality with God cannot be settled by appeal to the phrase. So this paper that Hoover wrote in 1971 definitively proved that he was equal and he didn't take advantage of it. Of course, I don't think that many people read it, but when N.T. Wright picked up Hoover's case and popularized it in 1986, everyone's just like, oh yeah, Philippians 2.6 clearly teach the, teaches the equality of the Father and the Son. Well, scholarship has developed a lot since 1986. We've got access to 
Greek databases that you can look up a word like harpagmas. You can look up every single instance of it from Homer to the fall of Constantinople in 1453 in that amount of time. Guess what? That wasn't available in 1986. And so now we are able to find counterexamples of the word being used of people who didn't have what they were reaching for and other people that did have it and didn't take advantage of it. Guess what? It can mean both. It's ambiguous. So that's why Martin says you can't decide the issue of equality with God by appeal to this verse or phrase. Conclusion. In our limited quest to survey the biblical data, we have found overwhelming evidence of the Son's subordination to the Father. And again, I'm a Bible guy. Bible is first. I did 10 pages on biblical texts before I, I asked a single theological question in the paper. I did that on purpose. I wanted to overwhelm you. I, want, I wanted you to just be like, all right, Sean, okay, all right, enough. Because the Bible is overwhelmingly supportive of the subordination of the Son to the Father over and over and over again. Whether we're looking at Old Testament messianic prophecies, whether we're looking at the synoptic gospels where Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. Or whether we look at the book of Acts, which calls Jesus the exalted, risen, ascended, at the right hand of God, already poured out the Spirit, Jesus, a servant four times. You're going to call the exalted Jesus a servant four times. I don't even have the guts to do that. But the Bible did. So what am I going to do with it? I, I got to get on board, right? The biblical evidence is just overwhelming that still, even in his heavenly exalted state, he is subordinate to the Father. So we considered the theological explanations available to rescue ontological equality from so many difficult texts. We saw that the economic trinity strategy failed, not only for lacking biblical grounding, but also because of the many subordination texts prior to and after the Incarnation. We considered the concept of permanent role subordination within the Trinity and found that eternal subordination logically implied ontological subordination. Lastly, we saw that the major texts that apologists depend on to build a biblical case for ontological equality either don't necessitate ontological equality or they depend on a priori interpretive commitments and could just as easily fit within a subordinationist perspective. Thus, I conclude that ontological subordination is the best explanation of the Father's relation to the Son. Thanks for your attention. Well, that brings this episode to a close. Would love to hear your thoughts. Come on over to restitutio.org. Find episode 426, The Father is Greater Than I. I'd love to hear your comments and questions there. If you are interested in more about the Supreme Father and how he is the one God overall, I encourage you to check out our One God Overall class, which is freely available. Just scroll down in this feed or you can check it out at the website, restitutio.org, and go through the 14 sessions. Actually, there is a session on this very topic, not as detailed as this, but uh, there certainly is a lot more information there. Additionally, I got in the recent question from somebody who left a voice message through SpeakPipe, and this is what he said. Well, hi, Sean. It's... uh 
Thomas Pickett calling, leaving you a message. Um, I've listened to Dale Tuggy and Anthony Buzzard and yourself and Bill Schlegel. I just have a question regarding the nature of Jesus. I grew up in a Trinitarian church, Methodist and Baptist. I never did get baptized in any any denomination. And uh, I've been searching on a journey for about more than 10 years and many of the truths and I agree with many of the things of the uh, Unitarian uh, beliefs. And my question would be though about uh, Jesus, the nature of Jesus. Uh, in Job 14.4, it says that nothing clean can come from unclean. And so wouldn't that mean that Jesus then being a man and having a sinful flesh, wouldn't that make him unclean? And what aspect of him then makes him unclean? All right. Thanks, Dan Sean. Again, my name is Thomas. Pick it, and uh, I look forward to your response. So this question pertains to Job chapter 14, verse 4, which in the ESV reads, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. A couple of comments on this. First up is that this is Job, and you just have to be really careful about the book of Job. You don't want to cherry-pick a verse and then use it as if it's some sort of absolute principle for all time. I don't know what percentage, what half of what Job or his friend says is probably wrong. Maybe less. I don't know. It depends on how optimistic I'm feeling the day I make this statistic up. But at the end of the book, there is a rebuke, and God thoroughly rebukes Job and also rebukes his friends. So I think we need to be very careful about taking something Job says in a really depressing speech and then making that a principle. In other words, just because Job felt dismayed as if it's impossible to bring a clean thing out of an unclean doesn't mean that God couldn't possibly do that, right? So the question pertains, of course, to the birth of Christ, because in Job 14.1 it says, man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. And then you get down to verse 4, who could bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And uh, the commentaries have a few different thoughts on this, which I thought was pretty interesting, and I figured I might as well share with you. The NICOT, that's the New International Commentary of the Old Testament, inclines towards the idea that this is talking about original sin, and that the reason why a clean thing can't come out of an unclean is because of the taint of the flesh, which is a doctrine, I believe, found in... In the New Testament, certainly in Romans, especially 7, but also other places, and I know that's disputed. We've had a a debate on this podcast over that very issue, but that's the direction the NICOT goes. The UBS Translator's Handbook, which I, I, I do like to reference that for Old Testament stuff especially, takes a different position. It It takes the position that we're talking about ritually clean and unclean. And so that's the idea that because, like it says in Leviticus, a woman who conceives and bears a male child will be unclean seven days, that the child is also unclean because of the the fluids involved in the process. Typically, any bodily fluids make someone unclean under Torah. 
And uh, certainly, cleanness and uncleanness from a ritual perspective has nothing to do with morality whatsoever. Uh, for example, it's considered to be very honorable to bury the dead, but it does make you unclean for a time. But I'm not really sure that that's what Job 14.4 has in mind either, that this is talking about ritual uncleanness. And then, uh, last of all, I found an interesting note in the Word Biblical Commentary where uh, they soundly come against the idea of Job talking about inherited sin or original sin. They say that Job has no concept of this, uh, but that the church fathers went bananas with Job 14.4 saying, that's my word, bananas, by the way, but uh, they went, they, they just love to cite this reference to build the teaching of the original sin idea. But uh, what Job is just doing here, according to the WBC, is just speaking pragmatically and just trying to talk about what happens to be the case that you can't bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing. Unclean things tend to contaminate clean things. If you have a dirty hamper and in the middle of it, you have a clean pair of socks, you take them out and guess what? They smell like the rest of the dirty clothes. It's just a general statement. And so I don't think we need to get too theological here and say, well, then Jesus can't possibly be a a lamb without blame who could take away the sins of the world because he was born of a woman who presumably had sinned in her life, just like everybody sins. So I don't think that's really the, the tension we should feel. But if you are curious about that topic, there are a number of us who do hold to the idea of inherited sin, not the Calvinistic sense of total depravity. But there are many of us out there, many of us Unitarian Christians out there, who hold to the idea of inherited sin, but that believe Jesus was accepted from that burden because of how he was conceived and how he came into the womb of Mary, of which the scripture does not say much other than the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and therefore that child shall be called the Son of God in Luke one thirty-five. But It seems very reasonable to me that if there is inherited sin, that Jesus is on a parallel plane to Adam and Eve not having inherited inherited sin and being that second Adam who is from birth sinless. And if you don't believe in inherited sin, then it's not a problem for you anyhow, so don't worry about it. Well, Thomas, thanks for sending in that voice comment. It's always exciting to interact a little bit vocally rather than just reading comments. If you would like to leave your own voice comment, just take a look at the show notes for any of these episodes or go to Restitutio and look at the podcast info. I've got a big microphone icon there that you can record your question. And if possible, I'll try to work it in to a future episode. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next week. If you'd like to support this ministry, you could do that at our website. Thanks so much to all of you who already do. And remember, the truth is has nothing to fear.